Welcome to the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam. This is a show of words and music. I'm Dan Wakefield, and I'm a writer. I'm Sophie Fott, and I'm a musician. We believe that stories and music were made for each other. Our show tonight is about the theme of mentors, the people who helped us along the way, who helped us get where we are, and our terrific musical guests who we're honored to have is the great pianist Steve Ali. Thank you. Nearly all of us can think of someone, someone in our past who taught us a lesson that we never forgot and showed us uh, the way to live life um, that we aspired to and were inspired by. And that's what we're talking about tonight, the mentors uh, in our lives. So Dan, well, my, you go first. <laughs> my, my first one was a great sports writer for the Indianapolis News, Corky Lamb. And I had the honor, I was chosen when I worked for the Shortridge Daily Echo to be the Shortridge sports correspondent for the Star. And how old were you then, Dan? 16, I think. I had to phone in scores and write up games and take them down to the Star Sports Desk, but the big thrill was when we had a big game, Corky Lamb would come to our field and I would get to run up and down the field with him with a clipboard and chart, taking yardage gains and losses and recording who the players were. And oh my God, that felt big time. And biggest of all was in basketball season, I got to sit at the scorer's table with Corky. But I also, the other great thing from Corky was he can, kind of became like a father to me and he talked to me the way an adult talks to an adult. And I think that's the greatest gift for a kid when some older person speaks to you like you know what they're talking about. And he told me about his problems on the sports desk and I'll never forget driving, we were once driving past Fall Creek and uh, he had told me about a problem he had with his sports editor who uh, kept going to the games himself instead of assigning them. I said, well, I read a book about sports writing and I thought sports editor was just supposed to assign them and let you guys go to the game. And Corky slammed his fist on the steering wheel. He said, out of the mouths of babes. And I wasn't insulted by being a babe. I was honored that he thought I said something good. <laughs> so anyway, that, he was my, my first great guy. And I'll, you, you tell something about yours, and I, I have another one in reserve. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, the key part of that story for me when I listen to it is hearing about being taken seriously. Yeah. I mean, when you're 15, 16 years old, 
you may not necessarily have a lot of self-esteem or a lot of confidence. Most teenagers don't. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, to, to have a mentor who looks on you as someone who is worthy, worthy of spending time with and worthy of being taught and worthy of being taken seriously. And so for me at that age, um, that was Harry Miedema. He's a saxophone teacher, great saxophone player and teacher here in the city for many, many years. And he always from the, the first time that we met, spoke to me as, uh, as an adult, or at least as a reasonable person who could hear what I was being told. And he does have a way of being respectful of everyone who crosses his path. And um, the first uh, playing opportunity that he arranged for me was with Joe Deal and Claude Cifrelin. That was the very first rhythm section I ever got to play with. Um, and it was it was for like a conference of jazz educators or something. But I remember it was only a few months after I had started taking lessons with him. And you know, um, nowadays most most of the time, I think young jazz musicians play with play alongs for a really long time before they get to play with an actual real live human being. <laughs> um, and for Harry to to set up a situation for me that was like a gig. It it was a gig at that age let me know that he had every expectation that I could play this music with other people. And since it's a music that's meant to be made with other people, I think that was an extremely valuable lesson for him to teach me. And it was one of the first of many that he taught me. <laughs> and uh, actually, I think what we're going to do now is play a song. Two real life human beings are gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna play My Shining Hour.
and the the really neat thing about that song is it's all about rising mm. to the occasion, and uh, and I mean that's what that's what mentors teach teach you to do is rise to the occasion and have your shining hour. So Steve, <laughs> when we when we talk about that, who comes to your mind? Well, I was thinking about the the connection between all of us and and how the music that we play, jazz, we. We learn things from books, but primarily we don't really learn from the books. We learn from our connection with each other, and it's passed down. It's an oral tradition, so it is passed from one person to another. And uh, this is the wonderful, the great American classical music, which is jazz. And um, I think of my mentors and um, three primary people, and I... And, I was saying to Sophie earlier, I didn't have to go to New York, I didn't have to go to Los Angeles or Miami or anywhere. I just stayed in this town and there were the marvelous, fantastic, great human beings that just happened to be right here in our backyard. And uh, for me, they were uh, Jim Edison, who was recommended to me by Fred Niemeyer, who taught uh, saxophone at Ben Davis High School. He said, I think you would enjoy getting together with Jim. And Jim had his own big band, and uh, I went and studied writing with him. And he had a big band, and I would go, uh, I was his band boy for a while. I would go set up the big band and uh, put the stand lights, and I was hap actually happy doing that. I probably could have made that my career. And that uh, <laughs> he suggested that I go meet Claude Serfling. So um, he gave me Claude's number, and so I, I called Claude. This is a, when I was about a junior in high school, I guess, so went over to Claude's house and just, it really changed my life in, in the manner that f for some reason I thought musicians were needed to be kind of prima donna to be really good people. I guess maybe the, the musicians I had been around, the really good ones, were kind of prissy and prima donnish. And, and when I met Claude, it was anything but prima donna. It was in the tradition of jazz personalities, he was loose. He was he was funny, and he was a very good person. He was very he had a very super high moral character to him. So I started taking uh, lessons from Claude. But the interesting part of Claude was he never told me to play anything or do anything. So you say, well, how did you learn anything from him? <laughs> but it was all from him explaining him playing, and so there was that oral connection there. And he used to say. I won't tell you what to do, but if you want to ask me something, just stop me and I'll tell you. So he'd start playing, and I'd go, uh, stop. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> what was that chord? And uh, so that's how it went for a couple of years. So would you say he taught mostly by example? Yes, I would, I would say so. And then, and then also I was unaware of of new artists that I'd never heard in the jazz world. I mean, the whole Blue Note catalog, Joe Henderson, the Miles Davis, John Coltrane, the brand new Chick Corea album, Now He Sings, Now He Sobs. I remember the moment he put the headphones on me to play that album, and that alone practically changed my life, to hear Roy Haynes playing drums on that. And then, in addition to jazz, I mean, he didn't have to do this, but he played me... Uh, the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky, uh, music for strings, percussion, and Celeste by Bartok, and uh, uh, Green by Takamitsu, and 
Debussy and Ravel. I mean, that, that took a lot of time to, you know, to take the time to, to share that music with others. So I, What stands out to me in what you just said was he didn't have to do that. And I think the great teachers always go above and beyond of whatever they're required to do. They do things they didn't have to do because they genuinely want to share with you. And you can feel that genuine emotion and desire, and it is an honor. It was amazing. It was truly amazing. So I did go on to college for one year, and that was just not my cup of tea. It didn't, there was no jazz program, and I didn't have classical piano lessons. So I'm back in Indianapolis, and um, Claude had just played on the Woody Herman Band, and he got a call to play on the Buddy Rich Band. But he was married, and he didn't want to go back out. So he actually recommended me for the Buddy Rich Band when I was 19. And I thought, man, he didn't have to do that either, you know. So, <laughs> so uh, But then I was drafted off of the Buddy Rich Band. <laughs> but when I got home, the week I got home, he had been asked to play a five-night-a-week gig at the Lamplighter restaurant, which was at 38th and Emerson. It's now Ebony and Ivory, I think. But uh, they had music five nights a week, and uh, he drove me over and introduced me to the club owner. So that was, uh, I mean, he didn't have to do that either. That was a pretty cool gig. And then he actually joined you on the bandstand for that gig, Then correct? a couple months later... Our bass player had to leave, and at the time, there, were, there was only one bass player in Indianapolis. So Claude started playing. Uh, he had an organ at his house, and we started. Uh, so he brought the organ in and uh, started playing, and we were playing there. And his friend, John Von Olin, who had just gotten off the Stan Kenton Orchestra, came in and said, I want to form a band around this sound. And so... Um, we rehearsed that summer, and by that fall, we were playing six nights a week for two years. I tell my students that it's, it's a wonderful feeling to, to sweat on the bandstand, you know, to really work at what you do. We used to play from 10 to 3 o'clock in the morning. I, I, I learned that I could uh, play and sleep at the same time at that time. <laughs> well, let's, let's play a tune that you brought in, Steve, that was written by Claude. I'd love to. Uh, Claude Serfalin wrote six songs. They were all titled Zebra One, Two, Three, Four, Five, Six. Can you tell us why? No. <laughs> I never made the connection, I guess. <laughs> I should know this. Uh, we also recorded this in New York City in September with the Rufus Reed Quartet uh, because I told Dan, I think the subject of mentors is in the air because we had just recently uh, recorded this album and, and Rufus had mentors as well, uh, Bobby Hutcherson. And uh, so this recording that is yet to come out will also have this song called Zebra 3.
Thank you. Zebra 3 by Claude Sifferlin. I think it's amazing how sometimes, you know, a great teacher in your life will say one sentence that stays with you for a lifetime. And I, I think about Claude a lot when I play on this stage because there was a moment like that for me right here in the jazz kitchen. He, Claude was a mentor of mine as well. And I can remember um, I was probably about 14 years old and they used to have jam sessions here on Sunday afternoons. And there were like eight of us lined up right here where we're sitting now with our horns. And Claude was on the piano. Uh, and we had been playing some tune, probably like impressions or something like that. I don't know. And, and we finished. And then Claude just stood up at the piano right over there. And he said, it's more important the space between the notes than the notes you play. And then he just said, silence. And I will never, ever, ever forget that. And so often when I'm playing, I can, I can see him, I can hear him saying that, and I just, it's a, it's a lesson that has stuck with me forever. Do you have any standout moments like that, Steve? Any lessons that? Well, on this same stage, I was, talking to Kimmy Phelps last night, who played with Claude for several years, every Monday night here. And, uh, and Claude was very adventuresome at the piano. He could play a song that you knew, but while he was improvising, he may go out to planet Mars for, you know, for a minute. And, and, uh, and, and Kenny said he would try to follow him all the way out to Mars. And, 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 and he'd say, I'm completely lost. And, and Claude goes, he says, you got to stay home. He says, I'm the one who goes out to the grocery for the shopping and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to stay home and mind the store, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's go back in time a little bit for everybody to those formative years when you're working hard at learning your craft and you're being encouraged by your mentors and you're also kind of trying to figure out your path. Steve was talking about playing every, well, six nights a week and what a workout that was for him and, and that was sort of where you, know, you did a lot of your learning, I guess. What about you, Dan? What was your what was that period of time for you where you were really working hard, and who was there for you as a mentor at that time? You know, one of my first mentors here was was the great sports editor Bob Collins. When I knew him, he wasn't the sports editor, but when I worked one summer on the Star Sports Desk in college, one of the great things he he gave me books to read. He gave me, and I'll never forget, he gave me a book called. A Rabble in Arms by Kenneth Roberts about the American Revolution. And the title came from a British general who said of Washington's army, it's a rabble in arms flushed with success and ignorance. And he also gave me a book called What Makes Sammy Run about Hollywood. I think the other book he gave me was also about Hollywood called the Disenchanted, which was about, really about F. Scott Fitzgerald. But the fact that he would give me these books and tell me why they were good and why to read them was just tremendous. And one of my greatest pleasures was when he came to visit me in New York 
and I was living in the village, and I was able to give him a book by John Updike, a, a novel about a basketball player called Rabbit Run. And that was one of my great pleasures, was that I could give it back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I think we're going to uh, play a song from Steve's past, from those years of working hard. <laughs> we're going to play Bessie's Blues, and can you tell us the story behind this song? Bessie's Blues, um, a song by, a blues by John Coltrane, and, um, and we, it, it was our break tune, so we'd play it three or four times a night, you know, so uh, let's do Bessie's Blues.
Let's hear it for Steve Ali on the piano. Welcome back to the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam. We're coming to you from the Jazz Kitchen in Indianapolis. My name is Sophie Fott. I'm a musician. I'm here with Dan Wakefield, writer, and Steve Ali, pianist. And tonight our topic is mentors. And so uh, I guess I'd like to start this half of the show uh, by asking both of you what do you think are the attributes of a good mentor? Generosity of spirit, I guess. Um, and I don't know, there was, there was a great feeling, well, obviously here too, but in, in New York in the 50s, older writers were really uh, willing to help you, were, were wanting to be mentors. Uh, I guess mentors are are generous with with what they know. They want to share it. And I would add to that. I think that they they know a lot, not just about that specific craft that you are pursuing together with so much passion, but they know a lot about life that they share with you. And uh, the great mentors in my life, when I think about them, I think about the life lessons I learned from them too. They were good musicians, but they were also really good people, which I think, Steve, you could attest to as well. Absolutely, and I, I wrote a couple lines that I just thought, uh, for me, uh, mentors make life worth living. All of a sudden, there was a purpose. Uh, there was a sense of value. I, I felt that there was an importance in, in the words that they were saying, and uh, purpose and direction, and give a point of view a worldview, and it, it cha would change our view. Uh, I mean, uh, they were not trying to change our view, but by their example, they would let there be known a, a world that might, there might be better choices than, than I was making, perhaps, even. And I think all of us come from, fa I know in my family, I was the only musician. There weren't any other musical people around, mm -hmm. and, you know, my parents were very supportive, but also they were kind of... I don't, what, what's this music thing? <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, I remember that um, when I was taking lessons in high school from Jim Edison, that uh, my mom and dad were not musicians. Our family and my dad was in electrical field and became, you know, electrician, then vice president, president of uh, Watson Flag Electric Company, but. They didn't know any much about the music world, mm -hmm. and Jim Edison called my parents just to kind of reassure them to say, you know, it's going to be okay. Steve's going to be okay, whatever that means. <laughs> Minimum wage, you know, he'll be fine. <laughs> and it's amazing that one phone call was all it took to me. <laughs> Nobody called my parents. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Dan, what did your parents think about your aspirations to become they, a writer? They were so generous and so accepting of all the crazy stuff I was doing. Uh, it's really amazing. I would love you to tell the story of your discovery. Okay, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the big moment for me, I was a freshman at IU, and um, Nicholas Payton, who's a trumpet player um, well-known in the jazz world, came through to do a clinic at the school, and they picked a couple of student groups to play for him. 
and mine was one of them. It was like the entire school, all the students, because of course everybody turned out to hear what Nicholas had to say. And uh, we, we played a couple of tunes. I think we might have played a tune that I had written and a couple others. And then uh, at a certain point while we were playing, he stopped us and he was standing in the back of the room and I like, had his arms crossed and was looking kind of intimidating. Or maybe that was just how I was feeling at the time. I don't know. And he just kind of pointed at me and he said, what's your name? And I said what my name was. And he said, you go to school here? And I said, yes. And he said, not for long. <laughs> in front of the whole school. <laughs> and so then when we finished up playing... You know, uh, I was just packing up my horn and getting ready to go back to my dorm and eat a bagel or whatever. And uh, and he approached me and he said, well, do you have a business card? And I said, no. Um, he said, well, I'd like to get your number. And I said, okay. So I just tore a piece of paper out of my notebook and put my name and number on it and handed it to him. And um, pretty soon uh, he called me up and I was playing with his group as the saxophone player. Uh, which was really cool, which was an amazing experience to have at 19. But the other part of the story is all of the preparation and all of the work that happened in the years before that moment took place. And all of the people that were standing behind me, giving me the confidence to be up there playing in front of this person who was like a rock star to us, literally. And, you know, without having had all of those performance opportunities in the past that Harry had given me, without having... Um, the chance to play with a piano player who was as an exceptional and accompanist and musician as Claude, would I have been ready to play the notes that I played that made the impression they did? Would I have been able to stand there and not just go sit down in the chair and take a break? No. So, you know, behind every extraordinary moment like that are extraordinary teachers and extraordinary parents and extraordinary people who supported that person and got them to where they could do what they needed to do. Oh. <laughs> and that's why I'm so glad we're here tonight talking about this because that's the side of the story that we don't really get to share. But anyway, I think it's time for us to play a song. So we are going to play a tune um, that was written by Billy Strayhorn. And of course, Billy Strayhorn and Duke Ellington had one of the most um, interesting and inspiring mentor-student relationships in the history of jazz. Definitely worth checking out. <laughs>
like to ask both of you, since you have taught many, many students, what's it like to be a mentor now? And do you find yourself doing some of these things that were once done for you? And what does that feel like? Well, I do feel almost every day that some word that Claude Sifferlin said to me comes out of my mouth to my students. You know, I just, it just feels like I'm passing along many of those those same uh, ideas, ideals, and words, uh, and hopefully with some of the same spirit, I hope. Uh, I can't always tell if I'm a mentor to anyone. I actually don't feel like I'm a mentor, really, to anybody. It's funny, but um, I mean, if they, if they respond and, and, and feel that way, that's absolutely wonderful, you know, but, and I try to treat everybody with kindness if I can, you know, but... Uh, some I have to remind, you know, you didn't do your lesson this week. <laughs> you, have, you want to be the good guy and the bad guy, but you do have to be the parent that says, uh, please do your homework. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the phrase you said, passing it on, that's really the function. It's passing on to other people what you've been given by people. And I had 15 years of teaching at Florida Inter International University, and I really loved it. And uh, I must have been a mentor to two uh, women students who asked me to read at their wedding, and so that was good. Mm -hmm. But and I don't know if you guys felt this, but I always felt, I can remember in a writing class where people would read, I remember the first time somebody read something, I knew, I knew they had it. I mean, just like the guy uh, knew hearing you said, what's your name? I remember in, in, in a class, there was an older man, I mean, older man, he was in his 40s who had decided to come back and take an, a master's degree in writing. And he wrote a little piece about his experience being a, uh, a house detective at a hotel in New York and having to, and, and sort of losing it and beating up on a guy. He read that thing, I just thought, this guy's got it. Mm -hmm. I, I'll never, and, and again with a woman who, in my class, who I didn't know who it was, and she'd been teaching in a grade school in a, a, a difficult section of Miami, and she wrote about uh, being in France for a year and just, I don't know what it was, I just knew. And I, I knew to say to her, you gotta go to graduate school, you know, <laughs> you have to do. And that's wonderful to discover those things. That excitement of just encountering raw talent. Yeah. And yeah. then thinking, as a teacher, what could I do with that? Yeah. Have you ever felt that way, Steve? Absolutely, I, I actually had a student the last couple years that was a fantastic piano player he could play the keys off the piano, and a, a great writer. I mean, really, I thought jazz is in really good hands with this guy, because he can, he's original and expressive, and you would walk away humming the song, and there was lots of, lots of 
great stuff in it. Actually, I kind of struggled a little bit, like, what do I tell this guy? You know, just be his cheerleader, you know, just say, yeah, man, keep keep doing that. So I'd kind of lay awake at night sometimes thinking, what can I say to this person? You know, what? how can I challenge him more? Because uh, he seems to have all the bases covered already. So it usually just got down to just some basic things. Sophie and I were talking about uh, nowadays so many people are up in their head thinking intellectually and maybe what we could impart to them is that we play from our heart. I still think that's a very valuable place to be uh, when you're making art and playing music is to feel that. And uh, uh, I think you, we give our students a chance to make mistakes. So don't feel like you have to figure it out all out in your head. You know, go ahead and take some chances. Well, I have a great story about uh, being taught about mistakes by Claude <laughs> that ties into our next tune. I remember one time I went to hear him and Frank play at the uh, at the Chatterbox, and I went and he said, "Did you bring your horn?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Would you like to play a tune?" I said, "Sure." I went up there and Frank said, "How about Con Alma?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, I I think I know that tune." <laughs> <laughs> and then we started playing, and I realized, "Oh no, I do not know this tune very well <laughs> at all." <laughs> it's really a hard tune. It is a hard tune, and Frank was standing there like. I don't know if anyone knows Frank, but that face he makes when it's just like. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I could feel my face turning beet red. That's one of the things about being a redhead is everyone knows when you're embarrassed. <laughs> so bright red. And Claude is just playing along, just playing along, and starts playing the melody, so I know where the melody is. And, and then he said, he said, you didn't really know that tune, did you? <laughs> said no <laughs> I guess I didn't and the thing was the next time that I went to Claude's house to to play with him I had been working on that tune and I was ready and not only that but he he didn't even have to ask he knew what tune we were gonna play first and he worked on it with me too and that is a tune I have never forgotten to this day because of that experience and it just it goes back to what Steve was saying sometimes you got to be the bad cop you got to just call mm -hmm. the person out and say you did not know that tune but in any case I do know it today and we're going to play it now. <laughs> I hope I do.
Well, I think uh, the last question I wanted to ask everybody was um, about the legacy of a mentor, because we, you know, you have a, maybe even a lifelong relationship with a person, and then at some point, you know, all of us up here have mentors who are no longer here with us, and I, I'm wondering how do we remember our mentors and how do we, you know, carry on the legacy? Well, this is a great start, isn't it? I mean, uh, and thank you, everyone, for letting us share our thoughts with you because these are kind of thoughts that are just kind of churning around in our minds often, but we really have never expressed them to, to too many people. So thank you for the opportunity to do this. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I just would want to say, my wife and I were talking about also mentors being possible people you've never met, but maybe through a, a book or a recording or some way they've had a profound effect on your life, but you've actually never met them. So I think that's, I don't know if there's a word for that person other than mentor, but, uh, but there are, I think we all have those people in our lives as well. And I think it just illustrates that special relationship, you know, there will never be another person to teach me what you taught me, and I thank you. Steve Ali on the piano. Dan Wakefield on the microphone. My name is Sophie Fott. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, take the time to thank the great teachers in your life if you get the chance. Have a good night, everybody. <laughs>